Uh, good morning, Forest Park. Great to see you guys again. Hey, we're in part two of our series, Red Flag Relationships. Looking forward to uh, today's message. We're going to give you a lot of material, a lot of things you're going to chew on, want to take home with you and process. Those of you who are just joining us, uh, hopefully you'll get a chance, if you haven't already done so, to go by and, and listen to part one on our YouTube channel. A lot of information there, too, and we'll answer some other questions that I may not get to today. Let's jump in. Now, when we say red flag relationships, what do we mean? Well, red flags serve as warnings. They signal something is wrong or potentially could go wrong. You, you red flag something to provide caution. You want to call attention to an action or a change or behavior considered dangerous, worrisome, hazardous. Now, there are some behaviors within a relationship that would not necessarily be considered red flag. They might be what I call like a yellow flag. It's a warning, you know, it's a kind of a caution. You can work on this, you can fix this. But there are some other flags in relationships. If you ignore them, you are relationing at your own risk. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, if we went around this room this morning and said, hey, talk to me about a relationship that fell apart. Tell me something about, you know, a relationship that really just ended ugly. It was painful. It was difficult. Um, I think everybody would probably have at least one. Maybe it was someone you, you were married to and ended in divorce, or maybe you were engaged to and that fell apart, or maybe you had a best friend for years and it ended up, you know, just being on the opposite ends of, of life, or maybe a group of friends and it just fell apart. Something happened, something went on. If you went back and you studied at least one of those, I, I can almost guarantee you there were red flags within that relationship, but you didn't call them red flags. In fact, you didn't know what to call them. You were like, well, I don't know, some odd things going on. I see some behaviors in him. I see some behaviors in her, but I'm not really sure what that is. Maybe I'm just being too sensitive. Maybe I'm making more of it than it needs to be. So you ignored them or you were receiving such a benefit. You were receiving such pleasure within that relationship. You ignored those flags and you thought, you know what? I'll deal with it later. It'll take care of itself. It'll get fixed. As a pastor, you have no idea how many couples I have sat and counseled with. And, you know, they're dealing with some things within their marriage now that were present during the dating years. But they thought, ah, we'll fix that after we walk down the aisle. Or he'll grow out of that. Or she'll fix that later. And all it did was get worse in the relationship. So I can almost guarantee everybody has at least one story of a relationship that fell apart. And if you're honest and you went back and looked at it, you say, you know, you're right. I, I saw some things here. I saw some things there, but I didn't know what to call it. Or, you know, it was so good at the time. I, I just kind of ignored those. So here's what the series is about. All right. What if we could learn to notice red flags and respond, break it off, unhitch ourselves from the partnership? Move on to other friends before the pain, before the bankruptcy, before the divorce. What if we could learn to recognize red flags early on in the relationship and say, you know what? I'm not saying yes. I'm not walking down the aisle. I'm not signing on the dotted line. I'm not going any further into this because there are some things here we need to deal with. There are some things here that concern me deeply. But if you're with us last week, you remember, because all this is kind of a review of last week to kind of catch everybody up if you weren't with us or you don't remember exactly what we talked about. Um, one of the things that I said last week is that when it comes to relationships, this is rather difficult. 
is especially difficult. And, and why is that? One word, and that's investment. Somewhere in our relationship with this person, we crossed a line, an invisible line, and we began to convince ourselves that we had invested so much in this relationship. We had put so much time, we'd given so much attention to it now, we just can't let it go. I mean, I can't walk away from him now after all these years of dating or after all this time we put into this, you know, new business that we've started or after all these years we've gone through a lot of things together and I, I can't just say no now. I've invested so much. That's what makes relationships so difficult. We excuse a lot of things that we ought to call them out and we say, this is wrong, this is not right, this is unhealthy, this is not good, but we let them go because we invested so much. So we keep trying. Now, this series, as I mentioned last week, is not just about romantic relationships. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm single. I don't really have anybody special right now in my life. So this series is not for me. He's talking about marriages or he's talking about dating relationships. Or maybe you've got a marriage and everything overall is pretty good. And you're thinking, this is not really for me. Not true. In fact, what we're talking about within this series applies to any and all relationships. It doesn't matter if you're just friends or you're a group of friends or you're dating or you're in a partnership with someone in business or it's an employer-employee relationship or whatever. There are four flags we're talking about in this series. These are warning signs, okay, and they can be a part of any relationship. And if they are present, take warning. If you don't deal with these flags, these flags eventually We'll deal with you. Now, last week, we gave you number four. Now, what I mean by that is we're counting down, all right? So last week was number four. This week will be number three. So if you were with us last week, you remember that we gave you the fourth flag, and here it is. They emotionally use you. And we talked about what does that look like? It's emotionally unhealthy people. We defined what it means to be emotionally unhealthy. We talked through it. I think it was very helpful. We talked to a lot of people afterwards, and people said, wow, I never thought about that before. Some of you walked out of here, and you were like, uh, I'm not really in a, a relationship with someone who's emotionally unhealthy. I am the one who's emotionally unhealthy. You're looking in the mirror, you know, and you're going, wow, I've got some things I need to think through. I've got some issues that I need to work on. Maybe it's not your kids who are emotionally unhealthy. Maybe it's the parent, you, who are emotionally unhealthy. So we walked through that. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I highly encourage you to do so. A lot of good information there. Now, today I'm going to give you number three. Then we'll go to ne number two next week and then number, number one. And here it is, number three. We're going to open this up today. They attempt to control you. They attempt to control you. It's a red flag. Huge huge red flag. Now, you're going to have to really think with me today. We're going to go deep, all right? When someone attempts to control you, they are attempting to minimize you, to reduce you, to prevent you from being who you are meant to be, who you could become, who you might develop into. When someone attempts to control you, they are trying to push aside or upside your boundary, rub against your values, which disrespects your personhood. When someone attempts to control you, they are fighting to overpower you. It's a power struggle. Who's going to win this match? When someone attempts to control you, they are revealing more, and this is so important that you get this, they are revealing more about themselves, how they see the world and how they see you in the world. It exposes them more than you. Let me explain. Strong people do not attempt to control others. 
Confident people do not attempt to control others. Mentally and emotionally healthy people do not attempt to control others. People with character do not attempt to control others. Spiritually mature people do not attempt to control others. This is the reason when a person tries to control you, it should raise a very bright, bold red flag. Because when another person attempts to control you, it lifts the curtain and allows you to peek behind the scenes of that person's life. And what you will find, if you're honest, you will find a weak, insecure, unhealthy, spiritually malnourished person with a defective character. And he or she is using you to prop themselves up and make themselves feel better about their place in this world and you are in a relationship with them. That ought to raise a red flag. And here's where the friction really gets hot. This is where it rubs us, okay? We don't know what to do about it. Because we typically love this person or we at least care for this person at some level or we're in some kind of relationship where there's at least a somewhat of a mutual benefit and we don't know what to do. If it's our boss, we're like, well, you know, I don't know, what, what can I do? He's my boss or she's my boss. If it's your spouse, you're thinking, well, anything that I say just makes things worse. So I'm just going to let it go. If it's your parents, that's very awkward. I mean, what do you do? Call your dad out, call your mom out. What do you do? So most of the time when someone enters this arena with you, they're trying to break your will. They're attempting to possess you. They're trying to be in charge. Most of us are simply unclear as to what to do. So in an attempt to be a peacemaker, we just give in. We do whatever we can to minimize the pressure. If you remember this last week, you remember I told you the story of buying Cameron, my, my, young, my youngest daughter, a car a few years ago, and it had all kinds of problems, and we got the first problems fixed, then it had second-level problems, then we got those fixed, then we had third-level problems, and we got those fixed, and then we had major problems. And people were telling me, get rid of the car, you know, get rid. I was like, oh, invested so much already. Just one more fix, just one more little bit of money. I think we can fix it. I think we can take care of it. That's the investment part. We do the same thing with relationships. And here's the deal with that car. Right now she drives it, but there's all kinds of problems still with it. It's not dangerous. It's just got all kinds of little bells and whistles that do not work, all kinds of frustrating things within the car. You know what? We haven't fixed them. We just cope. The window won't roll down, but if you go through the drive-thru, you just open the door. The air conditioning fan doesn't work, but, right? but you get off or high. You just cope the way it is. How many of us have relationships where we go, I don't know what to do, so I'll just cope. I'll just deal with the problem. That's where the friction comes. We don't know what to do. So we just kind of hang in there and hope that it will change. We hang in there and say, well, maybe things will get better. And then one year turns to three years, turns to five years, turns to 10 years. And we look back and go, wow, all this time I've been controlled, I've been manipulated or whatever by this person. And then, 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 then here's, 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 that's where it gets really tough, and I'm going to talk to you from a pastor's heart here, okay? Then when you add a layer of being a Christian into this, it's already complicated. But when then you mix in Christianity, it really gets thorny. Say, so what are you talking about? Most of us who grew up in Christianity were taught to be gentle, kind, compassionate, loving, etc. And all of those 
are certainly the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, if you've been here at Forest Park, it was a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, I did a message on what it means to be spiritually mature, and we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, all that Paul outlines in Galatians 5, all the different things that we ought to have Produced in our, producing in our lives and growing in our lives. That's how we define spiritual maturity. Absolutely, those are signs of maturity. Those are signs of a, of a person who is growing spiritually. Those are characteristics of a Christ-like follower. All those kind of things. Yes, 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 and we should have that. But due to poor teaching, we concluded these traits, love, kindness, forgiveness, gentleness, is equal to weakness, inaction, passivity, becoming a pushover, allowing people to step on you, allowing people to take advantage of you. And nothing can be further from reality. In fact, let let me hand you a few doses of truth, okay? The truth shall set you free. Let me hand you a few doses of truth, all right? First, someone attempting to control you is engaging in a destructive and sinful practice, Someone trying to control you, that's not Christ-like. Someone trying to control you, trying to kind of control your life, that's a sinful practice. That's a destructive practice. Just admit that. you got to say that. Listen, it's not just their personality. It's not okay. It's not that you're too sensitive and you just need to get over it. Okay? You're not to be controlled by another person. God designed and fashioned you to be free and you will never love life and you will never live life to its fullest until you are completely free and you live your purpose out, your design out. So just admit that. Number two, the idea that Christians are to be passive, compliant, and weak is anti-Christian. That is not what Christianity teaches. You're gonna see that in just a moment. And three, You do not have to live the rest of your life being controlled by another human being. You can stand up, put a firm boundary in place, resist the control, and begin a process of recovery and freedom. But a lot of us think, well, God wouldn't want me to do that. I'm supposed to just lay back and be kind and be passive and be compliant and just let people do whatever it is because that's the way it is to be a Christian. No, it's not. In fact, I want to show you a few passages here that I think will open your your eyes a little bit. Paul the Apostle, when you study his life, man, he was the the apostle of of, of the power of love and why love is important. 1 Corinthians 13, he wrote, love is kind, love is patient, you know, love believes all things, hopes all things. He is the love guy, all right? But yet, when you read his, all his writings, you will see that there are times when he's defending the gospel of Jesus, when he's protecting the church from false teachers, he's pretty rough. In fact, Philippians 3, 2, he says, he's talking about these people who are coming into the early church and they were teaching, you guys are going to perk up on this one here, he was teaching that you had to be circumcised in order to be part of the family of God. So they were saying, fine, follow Jesus, whatever. But you have to also, uh, you know, go with the law. You also have to be circumcised. And Paul was like, look, you don't have to do that. That doesn't make you a child of God. In fact, Philippians 3, 2, he says this. Watch out for the dogs. He calls these false teachers dogs. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for people who do evil things. Watch out for those who insist on circumcision, which is really just mutilation. That doesn't sound like a passive, compliant person who just lays back and whatever it is you want to do, I don't want to cause any problems. I don't want to, I don't want to stand up to anything. Galatians 5.12, 
He's talking about those same people, a different letter. And he says, I wish that the ones who were upsetting you would go ahead and just castrate themselves. That's pretty bold. That doesn't sound like a compliant, passive, whatever you want to do. In Acts 22, Paul's about to be beaten with whips. They strap him down. Paul says to the Roman soldier who's getting ready to beat him, he says, hey, is it right for you to whip a Roman citizen without a trial? And the Roman soldier says, you're a Roman citizen? Paul says, I'm not just a Roman citizen. I'm a Roman citizen by birth. He's using the law to sidestep getting beaten. That doesn't sound like a passive person who just says, whatever God wants, whatever happens, I'm just going to let it sit by, just whatever happens. No, 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 no. There are some times you draw a line in the sand and you say, that's it. There's a way to stand up without being opposite of what Christ teaches. Also, you know what? Jesus was not a pushover. Say, wait a minute. You know, he went to the cross. Yes, of course he did, but he chose to do that. And that was in context, you have to understand, but watch all the teachings of Christ. Look here, Matthew 10, 34. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, he's not talking about a literal sword. He's talking about the truth that divides. He's talking about standing up for what's right. And sometimes that divides. It puts people here, it puts people there. Truth by nature is exclusive. It's going to put you on one side or the other. Look at this, Matthew 23, 16, 17. Woe to you blind guides uh, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But anybody who swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound by this oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? So, I mean, he just stands up and says, you guys are deceiving people. You're wrong. Luke eleven thirty nine, 39, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. That's pretty harsh. One more, Mark 9, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is pretty rough, okay? So although Jesus and Paul taught love and servanthood and grace and kindness and forgiveness, absolutely. Those are at the center of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's at the center of what it means to be mature. They also stood up to false teaching and hypocrisy and at times sounded pretty harsh. So there is a time and a place and a way to push against a system of control. Now listen very carefully, okay? Now we're going to go deeper and deeper here. Controlling systems groom you to be controlled. Controlling churches groom you to be controlled. They like you to be under control. Controlling people groom you to be controlled. Controlling spouses groom each other to be controlled. Controlling uh, 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 parents, I should say, groom their kids. Employers groom employees. Governments groom citizens. Resist the control. You can stand up to the control. Now, listen, when I say control, this is very important before we go any further. I do not mean your spouse or parents or church or government or employer ask you to do something you don't want to do, and you got to fight the control. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Sometimes we all sacrifice. Sometimes we all do things we don't necessarily want to do or are uncomfortable. In fact, in all relationships, there is an element of submission and authority and guidelines and boundaries without any control, without any authority, without any leadership. Things do not get better. Rather, they descend into anarchy and ultimate destruction. 
So sometimes we got to sacrifice. Sometimes we got to give when we don't want to. Sometimes we got to go to work when we don't feel like going. Sometimes we got to do, hey, look, the boss asked me to do this. I, I, it, it's my responsibility. I'm going to do it. Hey, sometimes I just, you know, let, let things happen at times. You got to know when to stand up, when not to. You got to know where that line is. Okay? So I'm going to help you hopefully with that a little bit. So when I say people who are attempting to control you, what do I mean? What do I mean? All right? Here are a few ways to know if someone is attempting to control you. They blame you. That's a big one. Everything's your fault. They blame, blame, blame. People attempt to control you through blame. They criticize you. Virtually nothing you do is right or it's not good enough. They keep score. Well, you did this. Well, you did that. Well, I remember last week. Well, I remember last month. Well, I remember last year. They're always tallying up and they're keeping control. Here's another one. They create drama. It's always drama, 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 drama. They're trying to control you and keep you within a certain boundary. They're jealous of you. They want to know where you are, where you're going, who you're with, and why. And they're moody. Up, down. Happy, sad unable to predict, and you're just in this situation. So if you've got someone in your life who blames you, criticizes you, keeps score, creates drama, jealous of you and your schedule, and are moody and you can't predict them, there's a high chance you're in a controlling environment. And you say, okay, Scott, what do I do? I mean, I got someone in my life like that, or I'm in a relationship, or I'm dating someone, or I'm married to someone, or I've got this employer, or this employee, or this friend, or whatever it is. What do I do? Hey, that is a series in and of itself, okay? But I can give you two absolute musts. The first one I'm going to hit quickly. It's going to kind of be like a counseling part. The second one, I'm going to give you a lot more information on it, a little bit more detail to get into Scripture, okay? I want you to see this, all right? I'm going to go quick. Two absolute musts. The first one I'm not going to deal with too long because we deal with it a lot here at Forest Park. You've heard us talk about it if you've been here and you've been a, a, um, a, um, a family member here at Forest Park, if you will, for a number of years. You've heard us talk about it, but we do need to hit it one more time. Here it is, firm boundaries. You've got to have some firm boundaries in your life. Now, I want to clarify one thing. This is the only thing I'm going to say about boundaries, and we're going to move to the second one, and we're going to go deep in that one, okay? A lot of people think they have boundaries within a relationship when they don't. They misunderstand a boundary. Well, I put a boundary in place and he still violates it. Well, I put a boundary in place and she still, she just scales the fence. You know, she scales the boundary. All right. There are poor boundaries and there are excellent boundaries. This is an example of a poor boundary. All right. Do not yell at me again. I'm finished with you yelling. Stop. I'm putting a boundary in place. That's not a boundary. You can't control whether that person yells at you again. A boundary is for you. Okay? Here's, here's an excellent boundary. If you yell at me again, I'm walking out of the room. I will not attempt to have a conversation with someone who's yelling. You can't control if they yell, but you can control what you do if they yell. That's a boundary. When it comes to control, here's a poor boundary, okay? You will not attempt to control me again. I will not allow it. I'm putting my foot down. I'm drawing a line in the sand. No more. This is a boundary. That's not really a boundary. You cannot regulate a person trying to control you. Simply saying you will not attempt to control me doesn't stop them from attempting 
to control. You can't control them trying to control you. Here's an excellent boundary. If you attempt to control me again, we're finished. I'm an independent, intelligent, free person. And I, I, if you want to be part of my life, awesome. I want you to be part of my life. We're equals. We're in this together. But if you over, try to overpower me and put me under your thumb again, you won't be part of my life. We're done. So you can't control them. You can't control you. That's what a boundary is. A solid boundary states what you will do if this person does X, Y, or Z, not what you will try to make them do. That's all I'm going to say about boundaries. Hugely important. Very important. Here's where I want to go deep. Here's where I want to really help. And hopefully I'll do a good job with this, okay? And here is firm boundaries, number one. Number two, nonviolent resistance. Nonviolent resistance. All right, here's where I'm going to spend some time. Because I want to help you behave differently when someone attempts to control you. And this will hold true for many other negative, destructive, red flag behaviors. It's not only applied to this behavior. And I want us to do it by going to the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's why this is important. Before we get to this one little part of the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to know the audience that Jesus was speaking to. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, greatest sermon ever preached, you should read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. It's powerful. But you've got to know the people to whom he's speaking. Okay? I want to set the audience up for you. Jesus was speaking to a group of people who were familiar with being controlled. The people who gathered around Christ that day were suppressed people. They were oppressed people. Rome controlled them. Caesar controlled them. The tax collectors controlled them. Religious leaders controlled them. They were oppressed. They were discouraged. They were poor. The systems and powers around them took advantage of their weakness and their poverty. These are the kinds of people gathered around Jesus when he launches into the Sermon on the Mount. All right? So you get a picture of that in your mind. As Jesus kind of gets up on the little hill, the little rise, and he begins to talk, blessed are those you know, who are persecuted, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed. He goes through the whole ble- the, 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 uh, um, Beatitudes and then gets into 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. The people gathered around him that day are oppressed, poor, tired, burdened, controlled people. All right? Very important. Why? Because do you think for one moment, that the people who flocked around Jesus would have done so had Jesus' message been this, lay down and let the strong run over you. Do you think for one moment all those people who were already oppressed, already poor, already hurting, already suppressed would have gathered around Jesus if Jesus' message would have been, don't resist Rome, let them win. Believe that one day God will just take care of it all. If they want to cheat you, let them. If they want to beat you, let them. If they want to steal from you, let them. Let me ask you, if you are already taken advantage of, 
already robbed, already cheated, already under the thumb of the mighty Roman Empire. And this man in Jesus begins to encourage you to submit to Caesar, don't resist the powers of the government, give in to the religious institutions around you, lay down and let them do whatever they want to do, be passive, be compliant. How excited do you think you would be to go hear him? Would you tell me if that was his message, where's the kingdom of God? Be encouraged, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here? Just lay down and let Rome beat me to death? Where's the good news in that? Where's the revolution in that? Would you be so enthralled with what Jesus was saying that you would forget to pack a lunch? Remember all the people who followed him around and they got so enthralled in what he said, they didn't even remember to eat. They didn't even bring a lunch with them. And he had to gather the lunch of the little boy and multiply the bread and fish and feed the multitudes because they followed him around everywhere. He finally had to say, leave me alone. I got I to gotta get somewhere else. Do you think if you were already poor, already oppressed, already beaten down, already under the thumb of other powers that you just couldn't wait to go hear Jesus say, and let them beat you to death? Let them hurt you. Let them take from you. And don't you think it's interesting that they followed him for miles? That they laid down their, their business that their father started for them? The fishing business, they, they abandoned it and began to follow him? If his message would have been let Rome do whatever they want to? And, 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 and this is I find interesting too. If that's what Jesus taught, wouldn't the oppressors have loved him? Man, wouldn't Rome have loved Jesus? I think so. Wouldn't Caesar have encouraged the Jewish people to listen to him? Wouldn't the religious powers promote him? That's right. Yes, go listen to that Jewish rabbi. He's telling you the truth. Lay down and give up. Give us what we want. That's how you love God. You just give in. You let us take whatever it is that we want to take from you. Yet what you find is that the oppressed loved him, and the oppressors wanted to kill him. So maybe we're not really understanding everything Jesus said. Maybe we're not applying what he said in the right way. Because that doesn't seem like he preached a passive, weak, and compliant sermons if all the people who were beaten down, poor, and suppressed loved to be around him and all the powers that be conspired to kill him. So what does that mean? Well, the more that I get to know Jesus, and the, the more I understand his message, the more I realize the kind of sermons he preached were messages of revolution. They were messages of resistance, non-violent resistance, but effective resistance. In fact, it means that he taught those who were oppressed how to resist the oppressors without using violence. He taught them how to expose the unfruitful works of darkness and to do so without fighting, without arguing, without suing one another, without getting physical, without pulling out a sword, without taking up a spear, without rioting, without yelling, and to do it by standing up to their opposers in a brilliant, nonviolent way. Let me show you what I mean, okay? I'm going to give you one scripture, just one. 
inside the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, are three examples of nonviolent actions one can take. Time is not going to permit me to get into these three, so I'm only going to give you one today, just one. I'm going to give it to you, and we're going to go in just a few minutes, okay? Here it is. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. See, Scott, that sounds as passive as you possibly can get. That sounds like an example of exactly what you've been saying Jesus didn't teach. I know. Because we read that through Western eyes. We read that through our culture. We read that the way that we were taught to read it rather than the way that they actually saw it, heard it, and understood it when Jesus said it at that time. Growing up, here's how I understood it. Scotty, if someone hits you upside your head, don't hit back. Just turn the other cheek and let it go. Don't fight. Don't retaliate. Don't surrender. Or I should say just surrender. Submit. Let the other person win. God will get revenge in the end. And I've heard this passage right here be used to keep women in place. Well, I know that he doesn't treat you a certain way, but, you know, just turn the other cheek. I know he hits you, and, but God will get revenge. I've heard churches use this on people. Well, you know what? You might not get everything you want, but, hey, you got to turn the other cheek. I've heard employers use this. Governments use this. This verse has been used a lot to keep people in check. And the reason it sticks with us and we remember, in fact, if I went around and said, hey, give me a scripture you memorize, a lot of people would say, uh, Jesus says to turn the other cheek if you get hit. We know it because it sticks with us because part of it, our understanding is true, but part of it's false. And most of the time it's applied entirely wrong. And if we're honest, we know something about that explanation that I just gave you that I was taught as a kid. Something doesn't compute. It just doesn't sound right. It just can't be as simple as what anybody ever wants to do to you, just let them do it. If they hit you, let them hit you again. If they hit you a second time, let them hit you a third time. If they want to steal from you, give it to them. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but how many of you live like that? Well, if someone breaks in your house and steals your TV, just open up the other door and let them steal the other TV. If someone comes up to you and punches you in the face, how many of you really live like, oh, man, you punched, that was a good punch. Here, punch me here. How many of you do that? How many of you, if someone steals your car, you won't even call the police because you're like, hey, maybe they'll come back for my truck. Now, it's interesting, we'll say things like that in church. We don't live that. We lock our doors. We have, some of us have guns in the house to protect ourselves. But yet you say that's what you're supposed to do. See, something doesn't compute. It's like we know that's there and we're like, yeah, well, yeah, true, yeah, but I'm locking my door. Yeah, you're right, but don't you hit me. You're right, but if you steal from me, I'm calling the police. I'm going to protect my stuff. But yet we act like we know what that means. And we're like, something doesn't compute. What's going on here? Hopefully, just a few minutes, just a few minutes, just a few minutes. I want to unpack how the audience sitting around Jesus heard this. All right? First of all, what's going on here? I want you to read this with me, and I get to a certain word, I want you to say it out loud. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, don't you find that interesting? Do you ever, do you ever pay attention to that? Jesus specifically says the right cheek. Why is that? Why didn't he just say, if anybody hits you upside the head, 
If anybody hits you in, you know, your cheek, just turn to him the other cheek. It's just the right cheek. Turn to him also the other. First, people say, well, let me ask you, how do you hit someone on the right cheek? Well, you just, you're standing in front of someone and you want to hit them on the right cheek. You take your left fist and you just, pow, you hit them right upside the right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. See, we're looking at it through Western eyes. In that society, the left hand was used for unclean tasks. In fact, you didn't really show your left hand in public. It was a dirty hand. It was used for personal business, and you would cloak that. You would hide that. You would keep that hand not in public view because it wasn't clean. In fact, if you just gestured with your left hand in public, it was 10 days penance. The only way we could strike the right cheek with the right hand would be with the right hand, would be through the back of the hand. So when Jesus said, if someone comes up to you and strikes you on the right, they immediately knew what he meant. Someone comes up to you, backhands you, strikes you on the right cheek. In that culture, when Jesus said that, it was unmistakable insult. They knew exactly what he was talking about. It wasn't a fist fight. It wasn't left hand to the right cheek because nobody did the left hand to the right cheek. The only way to hit the right cheek in that culture was the right hand, the back hand to the right cheek. It wasn't a fist fight. Fist fights happen between equals. Okay? These people weren't equal to the culture around them. They were below them. This was about injuring someone, not about injuring them, but humiliating them. To put someone in his or her place. Go fix my meal. Go get my horse. Get out of here. Go do what you're told. Suppress, suppress, oppress, oppress. Put down, insult, humiliate. One normally did not strike an equal with the backhand. You struck an equal with the right fist to the left side of the face. If you were an equal, you used your fist. If you struck in this culture an equal... With the backhand, you not only could get in trouble for the violence, but you got in trouble for the insult. You could get fined for insulting someone who was equal to your caste. A backhand was a slap, and it was a way of scolding inferiors. In this culture, masters backhanded slaves. Husbands, it's horrible, but it's true. Backhanded wives. Parents, backhanded children. Men, backhanded women, Romans, backhanded Jews. It was a caste system. I backhand those who are behind me, below me, inferior to me. When Jesus said this, he was talking about unequal relationships. Remember, who, who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to victims, people who have been subjected to humiliation time and time again. Many of these people had been backhanded numerous times. So when he said, if someone comes up to you and backhands you up the side of the right side of your face, they were like, that's happened. Yep, been there. You been backhanded? Yep, me too. You guys ever been hit on the right side of your face? Yeah, me too. I had a Roman soldier the other day backhand me. Yep, the women in the audience were going, yep, I've been backhanded many times. Yep, I've been hit like that. I've been humiliated. They have been forced to accept their fate, suppress their outrage at the degrading system of class and race and gender and age and status. So why in the world 
would Jesus advise these already humiliated people to turn the other cheek? This is where it gets so incredibly beautiful. Listen, I'm getting ready to go. Because turning the other cheek to his audience, to his audience, not ours, because we don't understand the culture and the way things work. But when he said it to his audience, when he said turn the other cheek to this audience, to the beaten down, to the humiliated, to the oppressed people, didn't mean the same thing we think it means. We think it means you get hit, you just let them hit you again. That's not what they heard. Normally, if someone was backhanded in this culture, the person didn't say anything. The person didn't do anything except scurry off and do what they were told. If you were in that culture and you came up to someone much wealthier, much more powerful in the government somehow, and you asked them a question, they backhanded you. You just took it and you just left. You just went and did what they told you to do because you were inferior to them. Jesus says, listen, to those of you who are oppressed, oppressed, hurting, broken, humiliated, mocked, laughed at, when someone comes up to you and backhands you and they humiliate you in front of everybody and they humiliate you, just turn the other cheek. Rob the oppressor of the power to humiliate you again. The person who turns the other cheek is saying in effect this, you hit me. I can't control that. I know you see me as inferior and you see me as nothing. I know you see me as just someone that you can just humiliate and send me off to do whatever task it is you want me to do. I can't control that. But you won't humiliate me. I deny you that power. I'm a human being like you. Your wealth and your power and your youth and your connectedness and your education and your maleness and your Roman citizenship, whatever, does not alter my humanity. You can't demean me anymore. I can't stop you from hitting me, but I can stop you from humiliating me. And such a response would create difficulties for the person doing the hitting because they really couldn't backhand you again in the same place because you turned your head to them. Now your nose is in the way of the backhand. If they want to hit you, they're going to hit you. But they're going to hit you with their fist they're going to see you as an equal. So the oppressed has resisted the oppressors. The weak has overcome the strong. The poor has won the victory over the wealthy, not through violence, not through retaliation, not through fighting, not through hitting, but through knowledge, by being harmless as a dove and wise as a serpent through accepting who they are as humans made in the image and likeness of God himself by turning the entire system of inequality on its head. You remember how many times Jesus was caught in situations and it seemed as if he couldn't get out of them? Remember when they took the woman and threw her in the middle of the street and they said, we've got him now, we've got him now, we've got him now because if he lets the woman go, then he's gonna say that it's okay to be an adulteress. But if he kills her, then he's gonna be violent. Because, but the law of Moses says to stone her. So is he gonna be compassionate and let an adulteress go? Or is he gonna kill her and violate every single thing he talks about when it comes to love and grace and mercy? We've got him, we've got him, we've got him. What does Jesus do? Harmless as a dove. Why? 
eyes as a serpent. And he says, those of you who have no sin, you cast the first stone. And all of a sudden, he turns everything upside down, changes the whole game. That's what Jesus is teaching here. You don't pull a sword out. You don't take a spear. You don't hit back. You don't fight back. You get hit on the right. You just turn the other cheek and look him in the eye and say, I can't stop you from hitting me, but you're not going to humiliate me. You and I are made in the image and likeness of God himself. Say, well, Scott, what do I do? I can't tell you what to do exactly. I don't know your situation. I don't know how you get hit upside the right cheek. I don't know how you're backhanded in your world. I don't know what humiliates you or what suppresses you or what keeps you down. I don't know exactly what you should do. But I do know this. You do not have to sit back and allow a parent or a friend or a spouse or employer to blame you and criticize you and overpower you and push you down and humiliate you and attempt to control you. You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to insult. You don't have to ridicule. You don't have to attack. You don't have to use violence. But I challenge you to pray and use wisdom. And the Holy Spirit can illuminate things in you. And you can say something. You can ask a question. You can make a statement that will flip that whole inequality upside down. You can establish some firm boundaries. And you can engage some nonviolent resistance. And you can watch God do incredible things in that relationship. And flip the whole thing upside down. Red flag relationships, they attempt to control you, but you can have so much more wisdom than sitting in that place and being controlled. You're free. The truth has set you free. Let's pray. Father, relationships are hard, so hard. And Father, these people who were listening to that sermon, they were oppressed people, hurting people. But there was life in what Jesus spoke. There was hope in what he said. There was a revolution in what he said. His, his kingdom was opposite of the world's kingdom. His lordship was so much greater and more powerful and more enduring than the lordship of Caesar. Jesus came to the poor, to the oppressed, to the hurting, to the broken. And he taught them how to be wise. He taught them how to stand up. Not use violence, but use tact. Not use violence, but use love. Not use violence, but use wisdom and overturn an entire system that had kept them suppressed. Father, I pray you open our hearts, open our minds. Help those of us who are stuck in relationships where people are trying to humiliate us and control us and keep us down. Teach us what it means to follow your spirit and live a life that is filled with the wisdom of God that just upends so many suppressing, oppressing, humiliating systems around us. Teach us what it means to live the kingdom life in this world. Thank you. We ask these things in the name of the one who taught us truth, who is truth, and who sets us free, Jesus. Amen.
You guys have an incredible day. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you.